When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans. Oh, give it a rest. You're under new management. It's Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast now. Hello and uh, welcome once again to the podcast. And Pete, this is about the uh, third or fourth podcast since the big change. Oh, it was a big change, Gary. It was it was big, wasn't it? Big, big. Anything to do with you tends to be big. We weren't that big, Pete. What we've done is changed the name to Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Equal billing, Pete. Equal billing. It's only fair, Gary. Now, the interesting thing is, Pete, how can people find Pete and Gary's Military History on things such as Facebook, Twitter and other media outlets, which we won't go into because I know your uh, your secret little uh, hobby. Um, In the same place. Well, I'm so glad I asked. <laughs> so, if you just look up under, we'll we'll change the uh, the the billing on the uh, uh, Facebook and Twitter accounts. That'll have changed on the first of February, so that's long gone, and everything will be hunky dory and ready for you. But anyway, enough of all this. Let's let's get on. This is P- Peter and Gary's Pete and Gary's military military history, not Pete and Gary's chatting about things. So. What are we doing today, Gary? Or buffoon and butcher, as one of our good friends referred to us. Oh, I don't yes. think it was us, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it was the subject of the podcast. Right, well, today... Which, which is which? <laughs> we're going to do Hague's War, 1914. Now, some of this, Pete, we will have covered, such as Le Cateau and Mons in previous podcasts. So we're not going to go into great detail there, are we? No, and luckily Haig wasn't in those much, so uh, so we're, we've in a way got a, a pass on that, haven't we? So let's let's look at what's happening uh, now. If those of you who are, uh, are coming to us new, you can find all our other podcasts on Haig in the Sudan and the Boer War and his role in building up the BEF. You can find them all on uh, on on the websites. Uh, it's all there on the podcast. Uh, but this one is the actual war, and uh, when the war actually comes. But for Britain, that's the 4th of August, 1914. And Haig writes a letter to uh, the Lord Chancellor, Lord Haldane. And this is this to me is important because it just shows you all that nonsense about people saying the war would be over by Christmas. It's just that. It is just nonsense. And Haig is absolutely aware of, um, of, of, of what's going on. 
and the risk, the threat of the German army. Uh, and, and he also sees how just how small, almost contemptible, the British army is in comparison, uh, in, a, in a battle of the big battalions. And you've got a quote from him. Now, he's Lieutenant General Sir Douglas Haig. In, in, uh, he's, uh, he's in charge of 1st Corps. That had been the Aldershot Command, 1st and 2nd Divisions. Now, what did he say on the 4th of August then? The war would last many months, possibly years. So I venture to hope that our only bolt, and that not a very big one, may not suddenly be shot on a project of which success seems to me quite doubtful. I mean the checking of the German advance into France. Would it not be better to begin at once to enlarge our expeditionary force by amalgamating less regular forces with it? In three months' time, we should have quite a considerable army, so that when we do take the field, we can act decisively and dictate terms which will ensure a lasting peace. Now, uh, th- this is this is pushing against uh, the, the the perceived line. Uh, Sir John French, who was uh, uh, the, who was going to be the uh, the commander of the BEF, he's far more conversant, isn't he, with the, with the existing plans, which which have been largely made by <laughs> Brigadier Henry Wilson and Foch in a, in a very real sense, and. Uh, Haig changes his mind almost immediately as soon as he's aware of the BEF deployment plans and, and just how important the British contribution is to the French. And there's your favourite quote, isn't it? What's your favourite quote from Foch? Well, when he's asked how many uh, 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 Brits should be sent, uh, he says uh, one and we'll make sure that he's killed immediately. And. And this is what Haig comes to appreciate very quickly, because uh, you'll find out the next sessions on the fifth. Uh, but he's he's aware that in an alliance warfare, you've got to you've got to contribute. You've got and most important, you've got to be seen to contribute, haven't you? Um, and uh, sometimes the thing that sounds most logical, like don't put all your eggs in one basket, uh, keep back the, the, the uh, BEF and use it to seed a bigger army. Just aren't possible. They're just not possible. Uh, and, and throughout the war, we're going to find, aren't we, uh, that the British can't do what they want. In, in essence, the French are in the lead on the Western Front. Now, uh, the next bit is that on the afternoon of 5th of August, 1948, so the first real day of the war, Asquith, the Prime Minister, holds a meeting at 10 Drowning Street. And there's several of the cabinet there, including the designated Secretary of State for War, Lord Kitchener. You've heard of him, Gary, haven't you? Yes. Where have we encountered him? On a poster. I don't think it was a poster, actually. Well, he was... It's very very controversial, you know. Yes, he was. You know that as well. He was was in the Sudan. Uh, He was uh, also uh, uh, latterly in charge uh, at, um, at the Boer War. Particularly when it went into the uh, the guerrilla phase, um, and he was Britain's and he, he greatest, was Britain's greatest soldier. Yeah, Lord Roberts might have had an argument with him at that time. I think. Well, he's a complete idiot. Well, he'd still have the argument. <laughs> he would precisely. Now, there's uh, they have the meeting, and who else is there? There's three of the main BEF generals. So uh, <laughs> I've forgotten who one of them is, but I know Haig and uh, French are there. Now, um, so there's a big point, and what they're arguing about, Haig's, in this sense, Haig's withdrawn his original statement, if you like, uh, and the real argument is about where the BEF should be, BEF should be deployed. Now, Kitchener wants them to to go to Amiens. Uh, well, Sir John French, he's just all over the bloody place, and you've got a quote from uh, Haig, which sort of shows 
almost the bafflement that Haig has at, at what Sir John French says. Yeah, I mean, there was a suggestion from Sir John French. Uh, uh, Antwerp was one of the suggestions, and and um, Wilson later wrote in his diary. Um, oh, he was the third one. Of course, he was. Wilson was the third one. Yeah, and uh, he he later wrote in his diary to sum up the conference uh, as a uh, a historic meeting of men mostly ignorant of their subject. So, two things about that. Firstly, the sniping started already. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, there, there were quite a lot of people there. I just take my memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> there was quite a lot of people there who didn't know what was going on. But this is what Sir Douglas Haig said. He spoke about his hopes of now getting to Antwerp and operating with the Belgian and possibly Dutch armies. I trembled at the reckless way Sir John French spoke about the advantages of the BEF operating from Antwerp against the powerful and still intact German army. So when it came to my turn to speak, I formulated a number of questions to bring out the risk we would run of defeat in detail if we separated from the French at the outset of the campaign. Have we enough troops with the Belgians to carry on a campaign independently of the French or do we run excessive risk if we act separately of defeat in detail? And what does our general staff know of the fighting value of the Belgian army? Good points, good points. So Haig's already getting to grips with things. Uh, defeat in detail. We've just done a podcast on Islandwana. Oh, I've forgotten how to say it. Islandwana. Uh, oh, that's very good. Uh, but or is it? again, de- defeat it. Yes, it's got no L in. Uh, <laughs> Islandwana. <laughs> that's it. I have a lot of trouble. With it. But the point is, defeat in detail is uh, something that the British Army has experienced. Uh, uh, so, so he now fully accepts that the BF are going to be deployed at once. He accepts uh, that they're going to France. He, but he's got his arms, his eyes, his arms, some part of his body fixed on a long war, uh, which will require a British army of up to a million in strength. So he's right alongside with Kitchen and that things. Uh, he does have an eye on keeping a pool of well-trained regular officers and NCOs. You'd have been one of them, wouldn't you? Uh, left out of battle um, uh, as a yeast. As a yeast, I think of you as a yeast in many ways. And there are parts of your body that seem to be riddled with it uh, in this process of growing a vast new army. Uh, I personally think of myself as a mouldy old doe. I remember that, Lieutenant Pinch. Let's not go off in the singing. I do apologise, listeners. Anyway. Oh, yeah. So, now, French and Hague... What's their relationship? Where where are they at this time, Gary? Well, they'd worked really closely together in South Africa, uh, but since they'd sort of grown apart, as can sometimes happen. And this was largely... Well, even, even in the closest of relationships. Even in the closest <laughs> of relationships. And this is largely because Haig had gained in seniority and self-confidence throughout that period. I think the war probably... It, it's an extra pressure that, that's put in the relationship... Uh, well, under pre- sorry, under pressure. Repeating myself there, but uh, and Haig Haig is not the sort of character to keep quiet. You've expressed surprise in the past at Haig's mouthiness. Yeah, open um, criticism. Yeah, and uh, and and one thing, the next quote uh, gives an idea. Haig perhaps realizes he's sometimes gone a bit too far in his criticism, and it's like it's like a child resolving. I I must try harder. <laughs> so you're going to read a quote from him. 
I have grave reason for being anxious about what happens to us in the great adventure upon which we are now to start this very night. However, I am determined to behave as I did in the South African War, namely to be thoroughly loyal and do my duty as a subordinate should, trying all the time to see Sir John's good qualities and not his weak ones. Yeah, unfortunate that you have to say that at the end, isn't it, <laughs> Mr Haig? Anyway, uh, so I, I, it's not an auspicious start in some ways. Uh, now, Sir John French went to Boulogne on the 14th of August and began a series of meetings with the French, sorting out, because it's a big thing. The British Army is pathetically small, just two corps, but it, it's it's still a big thing to move them across. And the two corps, corps commanders, now who are they? They're Douglas Haig, 1st Corps, and Sir James Grierson in charge of 2nd Corps. Momentarily. Uh, yeah, he disembarks next. They they disembark next day at Hay at La Havre, and then at one o'clock, uh, well, not next day, uh, one o'clock on the seventeenth of August, they board a train to the Amiens Strait. Now, who's Sir James Grierson? He's the chap who'd beaten Haig in the nineteen twelve uh, uh, manoeuvres. Fluent German. I think he's a very bright and intelligent general. Uh, uh, he's uh, there's just one thing wrong with him. What is it, Gary? Well, he's he's rather rotund, and um, uh, at this point in time, he's largely dead um, because he suffers a heart attack around on the train. Time. Yeah, around breakfast time. It's a shame. Uh, I wonder if he got his breakfast first. But uh, one hopes so, given his pred his fondness for. But this uh, was a real blow to the BEF, as you say. You know, this disrupted their command arrangements at a critical time. Real blow. Do you think Grierson would have made the difference? I mean, people always say, well, it might have been Grierson, not Haig, that took command of the BEF. We'll uh, never know. Th- we'll never yeah. know. That's but the point th- about history, you- isn't it? Do you think it would be? Re- do you think it's relevant to even think about it? No, it's totally irrelevant. It didn't happen. Why? Well, it, it didn't, didn't happen. happen. It, it, w- <laughs> he wasn't there. He was dead. Which sort of might indicate that he didn't uh, come up to the physical... Uh, requirements of the job that's a good point Pete. yeah yeah it may have been a blessing in disguise who knows oh, so anyway he was a uh, he was, i like grierson he's gone who replaces him gary i like who? grierson he's gone <laughs> <laughs> and, and your favorite is stepping yeah, forward who is it who step is it forward general sir horace smith dorian horace Lef- lieutenant general gary. oh yeah sorry lieutenant general you missed full title uh, and uh, t- tell us a bit about uh, tell us a bit about Oris. Well, we've come across him before, and uh, and in fact, you've mentioned. Well, in fact, you just shout out random words from podcasts like Isandwana. But uh, he was at Isandwana. He was one of the few to escape. Um, he was mounted, of course, and uh, he'd had a, a a pretty good career from that point onwards. Um, and. Uh, he preceded Haig, for example, in command at Aldershot and tried to flog in his furniture, as we covered off in, a, in another podcast. That was but your favourite bit of that podcast. <laughs> and he'd had a good career. Good, he good, had. Good and he takes sold. over. Uh, bad-tempered, but competent. Well, that's, that's good enough for anybody when you're uh, a lieutenant general. And uh, on the 21st of August, the Cavalry Division come across. They're under the command of Lieutenant General Sir Edmund Allenby. Uh, also bad-tempered. Let's leave it at that, because he doesn't feature in our story much. But I like to point out the bad-tempered ones. In fact, Haig, who's merely waspish... And all their careers had sort of crisscrossed, hadn't they, as they'd come through 
uh, various campaigns to this point. So these are all they names have. we've heard before, Pete. Now, the Cavalry Division uh, under Allenby start to, uh, they cross the Belgian border and they're screening the, the BF advance uh, north of the Somme. Uh, now, here they get a lot of reports from the cavalry, from intelligence sources, RFC, um, that disagree that the, 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 the GHQ, Sir John French, thinks there's hardly any Germans there. They're, they're talking about advancing. And uh, these reports are, are dealt with with scepticism uh, at a conference they hold on the afternoon of the 22nd of August, which is one day before the battle. If you, so just to put this in context about Le Mans, what did uh, Haig say about it? The general situation is explained by Sir John French on information given by General uh, Henry Wilson from Air Reconnaissance, etc., showed at least three German corps suitably placed for an attack on Mons and vicinity. Little attention seemed to be paid to the reports, which have been coming in for several days, that the enemy is moving in large masses on Tournai. Is that Tournai? Tournai. Well, well, however you like, really, isn't it? The Commander-in-Chief had apparently not discussed the situation with his intelligence officer, McDonough, because the latter, who was not in the conference room, told me after the conference that aeroplanes reported all the roads running west from Brussels to Ath and Tournai were thickly covered with masses of German troops of all arms marching very rapidly westwards. Now, so this is Sir John French ignoring intelligence reports, much to the concern of other senior officers of the BEF. Now, we're not going to talk about the Battle of Mons that happened on the 23rd of uh, August because um, we've done it. We did a whole podcast on it. So we're going to glide past it. What What is one thing that you would say about the Battle of Mons, about Sir John French's leadership? Well, it, we've said it before. It, he was all at sea and, and <laughs> he wasn't actually providing any leadership, was he? He no, was nowhere to be seen. Uh, he exerts no real command or control over either First Corps, which is Haig, or Second Corps, which is Smith Dorian. And the decision-making's left to, to, to those two generals. Uh, and... Uh, in the Battle of Mons, Haig is really preoccupied with maintaining the link with Landrosac and the French Fifth Army. So it really all comes down to Smith Dorian. The Battle of Mons is his battle. Uh, French is nowhere to be seen, is he? And let's not, affect, let's not um, forget, this is the very first battle of the BEF, and the commander goes missing, frankly. It's not good, is it? Now, uh, the, the, the Germans suffer at, uh, at the Battle of Mons, sometimes badly, but... In the end, the British lose the battle. Uh, there's a dogged performance, but they're good at firing their rifles, but there's endemic military failings which will recur throughout 1914, or towards the end anyway. Uh, no coordinated response above battalion level, poor use of reserves, and dreadful artillery support. Uh, and and that, that, that's a general theme that, will, that, that goes across this. Following the battle, even when they've decided to retreat, the start of the Great Retreat, everything the British do is great. Have you noticed? The Great Retreat, the Great the Running great, Away, the Great, great Running Away, the Great Bolting. Uh, yes, yes, that's another. That's a reference to Haig earlier, uh, and the the staff arrangements are shambolic. Uh, despite that, first and second division of Haig's first corps they move off in relatively good order, don't they? Uh, hey, French is directing everyone back to La Cateau. And he wants to take up defensive positions there. But there's a big thing in the way. What's in the way, Gary? Well, it's the forest of Mormel. Uh, and um, again, we're repeating ourselves here. Um, you know, there's a decision made to split 
the uh, the two cores and uh, he goes off to the left I think um, yes and uh, uh, you know, he's largely not involved then in Le Coteau we've covered that off but uh, he's got problems then because he's on really small roads you've got to, uh, civilians uh, uh, trying to, bloody, to bloody get in French. the way and, and the French yeah and uh, second quarter at the roads down the western side and the idea was that they'd reunite only when they got to Le Cateau now because yeah the French army's getting in Hague's way as well because the, the roads are being shared so uh, the, the first course largely undisturbed during the retreat on the 24th of August uh, but they're very very slow and they're well short of Le Cateau when they have to stop and go into billets which they do at a place called Landrassies uh, just south of the forest if you look at the forest of Montmartre on a map it's just just below it <laughs> is that yeah I've no idea which way it is at the moment and at um, now now uh, I, <laughs> I like this because this is one of my favorite quotes it's from Haig's intelligence officer Colonel John Charteris now Charteris is not one of my favorites uh, and he's always a good source of anti Haig quotes whilst trying to be in favor but this one's particularly amusing for me because Haig's got a bit of a problem Gary uh, a problem that uh, you and uh, and Fred sometimes share. Uh, stomach ailments. I wondered where you were going then. <laughs> <laughs> and, well. uh, and this is what uh, Chartres says. D.H., he means Douglas Haig, was at his worst. Very rude, but eventually did see Ryan, who dosed him with what must have been something designed for elephants. For the result was immediate and volcanic. <laughs> But it was effective, but D.H. ultimately got some sleep and in, more, and in the morning was better, but very chewed up and ghastly to look at. Now, I'm looking at you on Zoom. Did you have an evening that was volcanic? No. <laughs> I just looked like this all the time. Oh, that's terrible. Now, Haig's got his headquarters. They're, they're, they're around them as a 4th Guards Brigade. And the German 27th Infantry Regiment approach. And there's a, an encounter. Well, the, the Germans march into them, essentially. Blunder into them. No one knows what's happening. There's a lot of panic. And one of them accused of panicking, and I think possibly panicking, was Haig, who was ill, uh, has no idea of the strength of the attacking force, uh, how would he know? And he tele they've appeared out of the forest of Mormal, as far as he's concerned. And he telephones to John French at, at one thirty-five on the morning of the twenty-sixth to suggest that not only was First Corps under a serious attack, but then later at three fifty he asked for urgent assistance from Second Corps. Second Corps, what are they doing that day? They were getting <laughs> They're slightly busy. Battle of Le Cateau. Now, this is an overreaction. It, nothing happens. Nobody reacts, responds to it. And it all becomes apparent that it is an overreaction very soon. Uh, why do you think people enjoy bringing this up so much? Because people do love it. If you read anti-Hague authors, there's often half a chapter on this. Why do you think they love to do it? Well, because he didn't perform at his, his normal high standards, did he? So uh, it gives them... Uh, it gives them a route into to have a go about it, and you know he's appealing for help uh, when you know there's absolutely nothing. We all know that the uh, the real action is taking place at Le Cateau. That's with the benefit of hindsight, of course. And um, Smith Dorian and the troops of Second Corps are putting up a fantastic uh, um, fighting retreat. Uh, so it's easy for people to to, to snipe at Hague, particularly when 
in reality he had very little happening on his side of uh, of uh, uh, the events. Now, look at her. We've done a podcast on. Uh, we've talked about how how Smith Dorian was brave and lucky. He escaped, uh, and a, his troops. His troops did fantastically well. They did, but they were soundly thrashed by the Germans and had to retreat. Uh, but they held them up and they managed to escape. They achieved the objective. The, they achieved the limited objective. Yes, absolutely. Now this time, I, I want to. We, we've said about we've, in the those podcasts on Mons and Lecoteau, we've talked about how staff work wasn't very good in Second Corps. Is that Smith Dorian's fault? No, because again, you know, how long had he been in in the command of Second Corps by that stage? It was a matter of days, wasn't it? Um, and what had happened to all the staff officers trained PSC then, Gary? What had happened to them all? Well, I'm assuming that they did the typical thing of staff officers and wanting to get back to the regiment the minute there was any trouble. That's some real fighting. Yeah, uh, and so he, he probably didn't have a staff to speak of until he arrived, and, and was probably in the process of trying to get one together. So, uh, now, I want to make this quite clear that we're not attacking Smith Dorian, but these quotes are, are very favourable to Haig's organisation of his first corps. This is Brigadier General Hubert Goff, who, uh, of course, appears in the, uh, the, uh, late, the war late, a lot later. So tell me what Goffey says. Goffey? <laughs> Brigadier General Hubert Goff says... Are you going to do an Irish says... accent? Are you going to do an Irish accent? Oh, God. No. Well, it's out if we had one anyway. <laughs> we remained under the orders of the First Corps for several days, and during all that time, I was clearly informed of the position of the First Corps and the intentions of its commander, receiving precise orders as to my role. It was a great relief and gave me a feeling of confidence to find myself under the orders of a commander like Haig, who understood the handling of troops, knew what he wanted them to do, and clearly directed them to do it. Uh, right, and uh, there's, there's there's another there's uh, that shows uh, the the good staff work, which is partly Haig's responsibility. It's just not uh, Smith Dorian's fault in Second Corps. Uh, this is Brigadier General Ivor Maxit, someone else. He's in First Guards Brigade, and he says this: Haig keeps his head better than any other, and remains unusually cool in his judgment. He, he stops to talk to me occasionally on the line of march. Ah. And I must say, he's the only superior officer who appears to me to grip hold of the essential points. Now, grip is very important. This is what people always talk about with general officers, that, that this keeping a grip on the situation, a grip on your subordinates. And throughout time, it's one of the things that is very important. And Haig has it. Now, there's a bit of a dispute flares up during the retreat. It's coming to an end, almost. And Lanrezac, 5th Army, the French 5th Army, he's about to fight, fight the Battle of Guise. Uh, Guise. <laughs> Who knows? Um, and, and, uh, it's a counterstroke. Who's it designed to save, would you say? Is it for the French sake? No, it's designed to save the BEF. And, and, uh, uh, well, it triggers a right row, doesn't it? it does. Because... <laughs> Um, Landrisak asks Haig to, for a bit of support for First Corps because of course First Corps are next to the Fifth Army they're the ones he's maintained contact with, that's what yeah. he sees as his role and, and Haig decides he, he says I'll, I'll, yeah I'll give you support as long as French agrees Sir John French agrees and he contacted GHQ for confirmation now all hell happens there what happens there well the reply from uh, French and the, the, the headquarters was uh, a brusque refusal but he, he followed this up with a a, a note that's uh, you can't say querulous can you 
oh sorry a querulous note uh, I was going to say it, it was bordering on, on downright rude it questions Haig's contacts with Landrizak and it suggests that he's, he's made some sort of promise of support now Haig was absolutely livid <laughs> hang on I thought Haig was only uh, I thought he was only a, a sort of bit brusque I, I didn't know this sounds bad tempered what you're about to read he was absolutely livid and, and his own reply was a stinging riposte and uh, if you if you listen carefully, you'll hear the insubordinate tone throughout. And this is Lieutenant General Sir Douglas Haig. I do not understand what you mean. I have initiated no official exchange of ideas. GHQ, not having secured from the French roads for the retirement of my corps, I had for my own safety to enter into relations with the nearest French force on my right. As far as it was possible, I have maintained touch with the left of those, uh, of these French troops. And due to the presence of this corps, their left has been protected ever since we left Malberge. My corps, in its present position, still protects their left. And if the enemy advances from St. Quentin southwards, I shall have for my own safety to deploy guns, etc., without asking for the authority of GHQ to do so. The extrication of this corps from the false position in which it was placed still demands the greatest exertion from us all. And my sole objective is to secure its retreat with honour to our arms. I therefore beg you will not give credit to such allegations as the one under reference without first ascertaining whether it is true or not. You wanker. Yes. In, <laughs> in modern parlance, he's just told him to bugger off. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 I'd say the, the working relationship is under threat, under stress, understandably under stress. I mean, with a good commander, there'd be stress here. But Sir John French is not a good commander. Uh, it's fraying, isn't it? Now, the retreat continues until Joffre, uh, the French commander's ma uh, commander in chief's masterstroke on the Marne. And uh, Haig's absolutely delighted when they get orders that the BFs to turn round, first corps, second corps, that's turn round and, re and and advance. Hooray! The war's over. August to September 1914. Hooray! Anyway, this is what Haig says. So they received these orders on the 6th of September. And he says, No words could have been more welcome to the troops. For 13 days, broken only by a short rest at Saint-Gobain, the First Corps had retreated without a check and had fought a continuous series of rearguard actions, some of them serious. The total distance covered was not less than 160 miles and there was not a man in the force who had not covered considerably more than this distance. Now, that's quite interesting because, of course, we know there, there were small actions, but actually he'd been in a, a series of smallish actions compared to poor old Smith-Dorian who fought two yeah. bloody great big battles and a series of other uh, battles that were at least the equal of Haig's. That's worth saying, I think. Now, um, Haig recognises that if you're following a pursuit, it's crucial to stay right up their backsides because if you don't, 
then they'll turn, they'll dig in defence lines. It's it's obvious they'll adopt strong defensive positions. And he, he wants them to get a move on. But there's unnecessary delays. Uh, 7th of September, well, you'd ex- what happens about the overnight orders? Well, they're not overnight, are they? Uh, you, what, what does Haig say? At 6.45am, no orders having been received from GHQ, I ordered divisions to advance to the line Malpotois-Dagny with advance guards beyond. Operation orders were not actually issued from GHQ till 8am on the 7th and reached me at 9am. I thought our movements very slow today. In view of the fact that the enemy was on the run, I motored and saw both Lomax and Munro, that's uh, Major General Lomax and Major General Munro, who are uh, commanders of 1st and 2nd Division uh, beneath Haig's command, and impressed on them the necessity for quick and immediate action. So he's been dynamic. He is. He wants it. But, but that slow slow orders, they should have been done quicker than that. And uh, and delays multiply. If you if you if if you, so if you have a delay at the headquarters, then it there's there's communication problems, and it just gets worse and worse, and you waste most of the morning. Um, it now Haig's often been blamed for a slow advance, but a lot he, he's not. It's not a pell mell advance. They're not against a beaten enemy. They're against the German army, which is obviously still under discipline and very very capable. And there is a degree of caution. What Haig's on about is unnecessary delays that prevent a, an organised and, and coherent advance. That's what the problem is he's identified here. Anyway, they don't keep a, a close contact and the German first and second armies fall back and they have time to prepare defensive positions along the Chemin des Dames uh, escarpment. Now that's just on, that's on the north bank of the River Aisne. You, 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 I think... You, you know where that is. I think we've been there. On the 12th of September, the BF finally approached. First Corps on the right, second Corps further back in the middle, uh, third, sorry, second Corps, yeah, and third Corps on the left. I'm getting muddled up with my corps, which is happening quite a bit. Um, on the right flank, so there, there's the first Corps, uh, they're, they're just slightly behind the cavalry division, and they managed to force a passage using a sort of canal aqueducty thing and get up onto the hills. Uh, that's great. Um, uh, they make solid progress onto the high ground and then it all grinds to a halt. They're encountering the German army on the defensive. Is that going to be a problem, do you think, in the rest of the war? Yeah. <laughs> Just a bit. Just a bit of a problem, That's yeah. probably the cause of the rest of the war. Yeah, I would say so. Well, uh, and uh, they're clearly there in strength. They've got their artillery up and it's the end of open warfare for the British on the Aisne front. People keep saying it's the first trenches dug in the war. The the French had dug many trenches further down the front, even in August. Uh, It's just for us. It's the first time we go into the trenches. Now, the Germans have a big advantage. They bring up, well, you might say they big up the big big guns. What are the big guns? Well, they're heavy eight-inch artillery pieces and uh, the idea is that they... uh just rain these destructive shells down on the British trenches. Do we do we re- return fire with our 8-inch or 9-inch uh, <laughs> uh, no. Why not? Well, it's we've got a lack of heavy guns for starters and howitzers, as uh, I think we mentioned in previous podcasts. Uh, and for the most part, you know, you'd be firing blind as well. So there, there's all so we're at the bottom. Issues. We're at the bottom of a, a ridge and they're over the other side. They're over the other side and... 
there's all manner of issues. You know, we haven't got the the correct firing techniques, and I think you know. It, you, you, you establish now that you've got to get forward and get to observation posts um, because you, you, you have no idea what's going on beyond that hill. Uh, no, the, the but the fundamental is, issue is we haven't got any howitzers. You know, that's yeah. a real issue. And then the Royal Flying Corps starts to play a role here. We've done a whole t- a podcast on that, so I'll sort of glide past that. But uh, the, the whole thing about photographic reconnaissance and art- air artillery observation using wireless, which are the two biggest things, uh, this is appreciated by the more intelligent artillery officers, if you like. And, and this is Major John Mowbray, who's uh, uh, headquarters of the Royal Artillery. Uh, he's a uh, second division. He's a CRA, I think. And he says this, or he's certainly important. <laughs> I've confused myself there. And he says this, Without air reconnaissance, no accurate artillery work at long ranges is possible. We've now had some excellent results from an air observer, James Royal Engineers, who controls his machine, observes his fire and signals results by wireless alone. The other day, James put heavy battery onto target in three rounds. An exceptional man is evidently needed for this. I reported effective wireless work to Sir Douglas Haig, and he has ordered us to apply for more equipment. That's hey. Now this is this is this, we, you've mentioned this about machine guns, about aeroplanes. Haig's keen on new technology and its application to war, isn't he? He is, yes. And um, you know, he, he there is some criticism of Haig. He's he's not always the instigator of the ideas, but uh, uh, once he appreciates them, he gets fully behind them. He's part of the process in bringing them into use, in other words, yeah. Now, they, they hold the AIN front, the BEF hold the AIN until uh, a race to the sea, uh, which, as you've explained in previous podcasts, is not a race to the sea. They're going for each other's flank. Uh, and and, and the, 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 the last chance, really, seems to lie with First Corps, which is brought from the AIN and sent to the Eeps area. Now, Sir John French is, again, completely ignorant of the German plans. Uh, and decidedly optimistic as to the possibility of carrying out a, a strong offensive eastwards. Um, now, uh, uh, Sir John, uh, by this time they've got a fourth corps out there, and a Lieutenant General, our old friend Sir Henry Rawlinson, and uh, he's meant to be pushing out from Eeps. He's going to be joined by First Corps and Hague. 20th October, First Corps start to move forward, um, but actually they find themselves on the defensive because the Germans have created a new army, the fourth. It's fourth army, yeah, it's fourth army, isn't it? And um, so what happens to them? They, they, they have to, they have to stop. They have to, they can't attack because they're under attack. And and this becomes the first battle of Eeps, which is last week of October into November, isn't it? Yeah, the climax is 29th to 30th of October. I just want to read to you, if I may, the uh, German order of the day for the 29th of October. It says. It uh, expresses the spirit of the attack and it says the breakthrough will be of decisive importance. We must and will conquer, settle forever with the centuries long struggle, end the war and strike the decisive blow against our detested enemy. We will finish with the British, Indians, Canadians, Moroccans and other trash, feeble adversaries and surrender Oh, sorry, who surrender in great numbers if they are attacked with vigour. Ooh. That's some uh, order of the day. <laughs> that has some going, isn't it? So, uh, 
This is uh, now. There's, this is meant to be. It's, uh, the, the Germans have brought up reserves. They've actually got new recruits involved. Although this whole massacre of the innocents and the German students, it's a little over exaggerated. Uh, I think we've tried to deal with that before. But a lot of the troops, the Germans are, are making one last great effort, aren't they? Uh, that, that's what's going on. Um, now. Um, uh, it's a huge battle and the climax, during the climax, Haig performs brilliantly. Um, he, his main thing is you've got to keep reserves in hand you've, to counter any German breakthrough. You've, you've got basically a few hours to counterattack before the Germans will turn the position round and, and, and make it fit for defence and it'll be almost impossible to take them, especially when you've only got small numbers. Uh, he, he, he sends almost every spare battalion forward. He called it, well, it was called puttying up. Puttying up. Um, uh, just enough troops to stem the attack. Uh, and he turns for help to who? Who does he turn to help to? Oh, well, he turns to his French allies, quite rightly, I think, uh, who proved to be well up for the challenge. So French French troops gradually take over most of the line around uh, around Eaps and they plug all the gaps. It's a superb example of uh, willing cooperation between allies. And, and, and one that's often misrepresented. I mean, it's often thought of as a British battle. But if you look at the map, the British section around Eaps, it starts off being... Uh, a half uh, um, a half circle and ends up being a, a, a little bit of a slither round the men in row. It's so typically of the British, isn't it, that you know Eaps is thought of as certainly first Eaps is thought of as a, a British battle. <laughs> We're not going to mention the Allies at all. No. Um, anyway, there's many climaxes. The staff of uh, first and second divisions, they're in whose chateau? They're monitoring the situation, preparing their latest counterattack, and they're hit by a shell, which causes severe casualties. And that 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 um, that makes command and control difficult. Uh, and and the situation's desperate. Why? What are the? What is the problem for for staff officers for senior commanders? What why what is the problem? Well, communications are practically impossible. Let's not forget uh, telephone communications were fragile and almost non-existent forward to brigade headquarters because even if you laid lines, they would undoubtedly get uh, torn up by artillery. So you wouldn't get any telephone reports from a battalion in the front. You might get a report from the brigade, but even those would be cut. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh, This is... This is... This is... uh, and the the trouble about that if they're it's one of those uh, those situations if they're too far back um, that they don't know what's happening if they go forward then then they disappear into the fog of war because they they're too close to sit they they're too close they've got to get it just right almost it's almost the balancing act isn't it now Haig where's his first where where is first corps headquarters at? it's at uh, the White Chateau which is close to what would become known as Hellfire Corner Peak. We've been there. Uh, well, everybody's been. Oh, sorry, most people have been there who've been to the, the Eaps battlefield, uh, and he could sense that the, the situation's desperate. Uh, uh, French Sir John French goes forward, and to be honest, when he goes forward, he's bloody useless again. Uh, but he does leave an account uh, of what he found when he got to the headquarters. Go on, Sir John French. I, I, I insist on a stupid voice. I found Haig and John Goff, his chief of staff in one of the rooms on the ground floor, poring over maps and evidently much disconcerted. But though much perturbed in mind and very tired in body and brain, Haig was cool and alert as ever. 
Now, Haig's ordering that they hold the line, and while he's doing that, he's trying to establish another last line of defence, about a mile in front of Ypres itself. Um, French can't offer any reinforcements at the time, so he goes off to see a man who could. Now, we, we let, let's talk about who is this man who can help the British in their time of need. Well, it's General Ferdinand Foch, who's the commander of the Northern Group of Armies. So he's the man who's controlling the battle. He's the man who's moving in the French reinforcements we referred to earlier. And uh, is uh, do, you th- do you think this? Do you think French's role is positive? Well, we we know it was, don't we? Yeah, I mean it's based on trust and partnership with soldiers under pressure, isn't it? So and it's critical at this time, uh, and it is how you should work with an ally. And and later on, I mean, Haig is always grateful to Foch and they have a good relationship for the rest of the war. It'll come in 1918, won't it, the relationship? Colonel John Charteris, he's always overdramatic and he, he leaves a typical overwrought account of Haig's phlegmatic reaction to the situation. This is what uh, Charteris says. Haig moved the cavalry brigade, his last reserves, to the support of 1st Division. He traced across his map a line a little more than a mile from the walls of Ypres, to which the corps should retire if it were driven back. In there, he said, it must fight to the end. Then, with his personal staff and escort, he rode slowly up the Menin Road, through the stragglers, back into the shelled area, his face immobile and inscrutable, (laughs) saying no word. Yet by his presence and calm, restoring hope to the disheartened and strength to his exhausted troops. Now this is bollocks. Why do you think this is bollocks? <laughs> this is bollocks. I've all and when you see this quoted, and people say um, it is bollocks. Firstly, do you think Haig's presence had an impact on his troops? No, most troops wouldn't have seen him. So... And if they did, they'd have thought, "Who's that?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a nice, what a nice, good-looking man! Who's he? Yeah, he was a good-looking man. He was a good-looking man, good man. I know you have a picture of him on your bedroom wall, and I will have a picture of him on my pajamas soon when my wife gets round to making them. What is Hague? What is Hague really doing? Then? That suggests he's removed himself from command of of the battle, and and you know he's just going up and down, being visible. Well, that's nonsense. He's got a job to do. Um, so if he removed himself, he's got no real control of the situation. Well, Haig would never have done that. Um, uh, so, it, so what's he doing? What's he doing? What's he doing? What's he doing? Well, he's, he's trying. He's trying to keep a lid on the situation that's that's almost boiling over. And uh, don't forget, he's got these fragile communications as well. And you know, disasters already befallen the headquarters of the, his first division, isn't it? So. He's he's trying to maintain control. He's not just there to be seen in a you know nice two two and tiara set. When he rides forward, he's not sort of grandstanding. He's going forward to the headquarters of his subordinate divisional and brigade commanders. He's finding out exactly what's going on, and he's working out where he should send his last reserves because he hasn't got many reserves. It's not a matter of saying go there, 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 and there. He's got to pick where he's going to send them. Uh, he's also aware that one more successful German a- attack might doom them all. Uh, it's it's a to me it's a measured assessment of a very dodgy situation, and actually Haig always believed if the Germans had made one more vigorous push, it'd have got through. And you could see this sometimes in some of his own campaigns on the Somme and perhaps the Third Eps. There's this element of one more push. 
Uh, in the end, the, the line holds, uh, and it would hold again when the Germans make another last-ditch attack on the 11th of November. Um, I think Foch is the real person who's the key player. I think Haig's defence would have had no impact at all without Foch moving in the reserves and controlling the battle. As commander of Northern Group of uh, Armies, he's the man of the match. He's the one with the real responsibility. Uh, and uh, But Haig does excel at the First Battle of Ypres. This is Brigadier General Henry Horn. Now, after the complaints after my last reference to uh, something, I'm not going to mention how... Uh, his name. Uh, he's CRA, uh, the headquarters of First Corps. What, and Henry? Later be- What's the matter with Henry? Henry? Why are you not mentioning Henry? Henry. There's nothing wrong with Henry. I'm Henry VIII, I am. But he later on becomes commander of, oh God, I forgot which army it was. First army I'm going for, but I'm not sure. And not certain. Towards the end of the war. Now, this is what Horn says. I can see Douglas Aigner as he appeared when he sent for me on such critical days as October 31st and November 1st, to see if any increase or readjustment of our artillery fire could be made to meet changing, most unfavourable situations. He stood leaning over his map, the only noticeable sign of unusual anxiety being a constant pulling of his moustache. Where was he from? That sounded distinctly Australian Nottingham to me. Yeah, it was sort of, he was sort of from both. Um, a lot of people think, when people say nice things about Haig, it's often portrayed as being flannel. But a lot of people say this. Now, this is Captain Ernest Hamilton. Now, he's not a big knob. We're on all again. He's in charge. He's with 2nd Connaught. He's not in charge. He's with 2nd Connaught Rangers, 5th Brigade. What does he say? After getting no rest the previous night, we were all somewhat tired and not in the best spirits. The prospects of what was ahead of them did not appear very cheerful. In fact, to put it bluntly, we were all somewhat anxious. When we were well within the area of shellfire, the corps commander, Sir Douglas Haig, with one staff officer and one orderly carrying his corps commander flag, overtook us. He rode quietly on ahead of us, as though nothing unusual was happening. I remember noticing how immaculately he was turned out, and how cool and unconcerned he looked. I don't know whether his action was designed in order to create an effect, but it certainly had the effect of bucking us all up and steadying our nerves. So, perhaps perhaps I was wrong uh, when I said that it did... But I want to point out, this is just one battalion that saw him. and To them, it seemed. And that's an officer. <laughs> I'm not so sure that a private in the Connaught Rangers would be saying, hey, look at that fine, manly-looking chap. I feel like I can fight for my king and country much harder now. I think they thought, who that is that? Right, the one thing I like about Hagen in this battle is the the flexibility that, that with which he controls his subordinates. Um, he sort of allows them to, to make their own decisions in a flexible situation within parameters. In other words, this is what I want. You sort out how you do it. And his brigadiers perform very, very well. They take a lot of the important decisions locally uh, because they've got no time to consult higher. They can't go to Hague or go to division. And uh, the brigadiers do great. Overall, Fosch and Hague do great together. Uh, they, 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 there's an effective and cooperative liaison 
Uh, French is involved as well, but I like to leave him out, uh, Sir John French, because I, I can't stand him. Uh, now, BF is lucky to survive the terrible fighting in, in these months. Uh, uh, but this is when Haig, uh, Haig's uh, work before the war pays fruit. How does it pay fruit, Gary? Well, he augmented the regular army on the Western Front, and uh, that was crucial in its time of need. Who uh, oh, oh, augmented it with? Gary? Well, we'd mentioned previously the timely arrival of the Indian Corps in October, which Haig had planned, despite being told not to, a few years earlier. Who um, else arrived? Well, you've also got several specially selected territorial battalions um, during the last months of 1914. No less than 22 territorial battalions were dispatched out to, dispatched out to the Western Front. So, so that that's that's pretty good. Now, um, so the lines formed, they hold the line, and now what's going to happen next? Now, we 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 did a thing about uh, field service regulations, and the basic premise of them was that you have to attack, don't you? But what's the problem with attacking? Um, you've got German trenches. What are the problems in front of them? It, it it's accepted that when you're faced with overwhelming numbers or a, a, a a capable opponent in the, in a defensive position. Sometimes defence was the only sensible option. But if you're going to win the battle, or indeed the war, at some point there's going to have to be attack eventually. So what are the problems? So what problems lie ahead of them? Well, we, we've mentioned them previously, haven't we? You've got uh, the existence of the German trenches, for starters. You've got barbed wire, machine guns, and artillery. Um, how? How are they going to do it? How? how? Well, if, if you attack on a narrow front, it's slaughter, isn't it? The Germans' concentrated guns from either side mean that the attackers are, are, are doomed to failure. If you attack on a wide frontage, then you've got a requirement for large numbers of troops, guns and ammunition. None of these were available we in, in, in any sort of numbers. And any gap that's actually torn in the German front line, it's going to be pretty easy for them to plug with their so reserves. So if they attack on a narrow front, they can only attack on a narrow front. If they attack on a narrow front, it's easy to plug. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, on the 14th of December, the French asked the British to, to launch an attack. They're, they're launching attacks with huge armies, the French in, in uh, the uh, Champagne area and Artois over, over this week, week or two before Christmas. We're asked to launch an attack, and Second Corps launch an attack. Two battalions, I think, go into action for the most part. And Haig, Haig thinks it's... He, this is the thing, your point, about how critical he is. He's appallingly critical, but he also has some positive suggestions. What does Haig say? Very little energy displayed by the 8th Brigade of the 3rd Division. Second Corps impressing the attack. Their methods are much the same as at Spionkop and Valkrantz in South Africa, where the whole army looked on at a couple of battalions attacking. So at Le Petit Bois, the attack was made by the Royal Scots and Gordon Highlanders, and when the latter lost some 200 casualties, operations ceased and the Gordons fell back to their original trenches. In my opinion, there are only two ways of gaining ground. Either a. A general offensive all along the front with careful preparation of artillery at special chosen points in order to dominate the enemy's artillery at specially chosen points and use of, French, of trench guns 
mortars, hand grenades, etc., to occupy the enemy's attention everywhere and press home in force at certain points where not expected. He says expected. at certain points a lot, doesn't he? He does. <laughs> the other method, B, imaginatively entitled, is to sap up as in siege warfare. This is a slow business, especially in wet ground. It is sad to see the offensive movement by the British Army, 280,000 strong, resolve itself into an attack of two battalions. So... I think he's right about that, and most people would. Those two poor battalions, one was the Gordon Highlanders, uh, and the Gordon Highlanders have long borne a grudge about that. Um, uh, that he, he, but Haig, yes, he is negative about that attack, but he's thinking. On 24th of December, he calls a conference of his divisional commanders and key officers, you know, the, the CRAs and uh, Com- Commander Royal Artillery, all that, and he sums up the discussion. Go through the discussion for me. It's really interesting for me as to what he discussed, as to how, how, just how logically they, they're, they're working on it. He says, We discussed 1. A. Trenches. Size, depth, and stair. Nature, sorry, state. Nature of revetment, etc. B. Care of men. Not to put into wet trenches up to their knees in water as has been done in parts of this front. Two, nature of defence. It must be active, otherwise enemy will advance and blow in our trenches with Meinemwerfer, as he did to the Indians. Three, trench mortars, personnel to be gunners or specialists. Four, hand grenades. Keep enemy at a distance as long as possible. Use outposts entrenched. Five, local attack. As in the old days, bomb throwers, bayonet party, attacking body with flank detachments, etc. 6. General attack. I asked general officers commanding to get to know the ground so as to be ready for a general advance when the time comes. I think I think this is this this is a really sensible program given the date, 24th of December 1914. He is clearly thinking about the weapons, the nature of trench warfare. Uh, it, it's a new thing, and it's go, you know, he's, he's, he's working. And meanwhile, the BEF is expanding, isn't it? Uh, the, the original two corps, they're now six corps. Um, and uh, the, the, there's a first, on 26th of December, they create two armies, first and second. They both report directly to French at GHQ. First is commanded by Haig, second by Smith Dorian. Uh, now, back, but how are they already? What's interesting is that the, the generals are thinking cogent, sensible thoughts. Back home, politicians, and if you look at the date, they're starting to think about the Gallipoli campaign on the 1st of January. Back home, um, politicians are thinking about attacking here, there and bloody everywhere rather than the Western Front. Uh, and Haig is worried, isn't he? What does he say? Well, he's got re- good reason to be worried, hasn't he, Pete? And he says, Lord Kitchener has recently published in the press that six armies will be formed, each of about three corps. We all think that these new formations with rather elderly, doubtful commanders and untrained staff a great mistake. It was folly to send out the new army by divisions and armies. Much better to send out battalions or even brigades for incorporation in our existing divisions and corps. C&C wished to say he had the army commanders in agreement with him on this. 
we all quite concurred and thought that the new corps and new armies, which are insufficiently trained, might readily become a danger. French also read a letter from Kitchener, in which the latter hinted that his new army might be used better elsewhere than on the eastern frontier of France. A suggestion was made of cooperating with Italy and Greece. I said that we ought not to divide our military force, but concentrate on the decisive front, which was on this frontier. With more guns and ammunition and more troops, we are bound to break through. Now, the thing is, yeah, the, 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 what he means is that I think he wanted to do it like the Indians. So you bring in a new a new battalion, put it in an existing brigade, a new brigade, put it in an existing division, a new division, put it in an... And, and, and build up and gradually expand the army so that you have more the experienced people alongside them. I think he's probably right about that. Uh, the new the new armies were untrained almost. But what are the, the key themes are being explored here? What what are those there's three key themes I can I'm thinking of. What what do you think first? Well they're they're tired of listening to me. Well the intractable problems trench warfare are clearly uh, apparent to him at this at this point. Uh, the problems of training and commanding vast new armies, I mean they're massive armies and uh, the growing idiocy of the politicians and their Easterner fantasies. I'm glad you said that, because that's, that, 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 for me, is, is the underlying thing. Uh, anywhere but the Western Front becomes the name. And anyone um, but the Germans. Yeah, but it, at this point, it's not quite obvious just how good the Germans are. They're just incredibly good. And, and they don't just stay static, do they? Whatever you do they respond to it it's it's a so if you if you attack they, they dig more lines they new tactics new weapons it's a terrible interminable struggle isn't it you've given an example previously like the race between two roller coasters and one being in the ascendancy at one time and the other one reacting and getting into the ascendancy uh, as a result and uh, we mustn't forget at any point that that you know we are facing arguably uh, one of the best trained armies in the world at that I think, time. I think so. Uh, now, by, by I mean, so we go in, into 1915. At the end of the year, Haig will become Commander-in-Chief. But these problems haven't gone away, have they? No, but uh, he'll prove the man to solve them, Pete. I hope so. All right, Gary. Well, so that is Douglas Haig in 1914, a year in which he was an active field commander, uh, very different from when he was commander in chief. He's actually in charge of of a, of a corps, and I I think he I think we've decided he did well. Your opinion? Yeah, he did well. He wasn't the only one. Smith Doran, I think, did really well. Yes, and yes. Uh, subsequently gets his reward from French. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think the BEF as a whole have have done extraordinarily well in the months up to December nineteen fourteen. We will be continuing the story later. Well, Gary, cheers, mate. Take care. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com. PGMH, or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?